together. Father, I have been under the strong impression that there are people that you have brought this weekend to the campuses of our church who, God, you have arranged a divine appointment for them to hear from you. Father, I pray that in these moments they would be able to see past the worship leaders, they'd be able to see past any performance, they'd be able to see past God, me, my preaching, they would see through all those things, beyond all those things, to their Father God who is speaking to them and calling them. God, I pray that the, the word would be large here. I pray that we would abide in your word. We would abide in the gospel so that your spirit would fill us and come into this place that we would know that we have been in your presence. Father, if you marked iniquities, who could stand? We are here because of the blood of Jesus And we ask that you give according to the riches of his kindness that's been given to us as a gift in Christ, not according to our righteousness, but according to your mercy, O Father. Not unto us, O Lord, but unto your name be the glory forever and ever. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. 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 Well, welcome back to the Summit Church. I say that because on this Sunday, there's always a number of you that are beginning to make your way back from the summer. Uh, we have a lot of being in the area that we live. We have obviously a lot of college students and graduate students that don't live here in Raleigh-Durham, but they live here part of the year in Raleigh-Durham. In fact, just out of curiosity, so that we can see you, welcome you back. If you are a college or graduate student who does not live in Raleigh-Durham normally, but then for you know you go to school here, if you would just raise your hand up really high so we could see it. All right, so let's welcome these guys back. We're always a little lonely without you, uh, but here is something that I especially want you guys to know. We have something very important coming up in the life of our church this Tuesday, August the 23rd. It's called our Vision Night. We are are really coming up on our 10th year as the Summit Church, and this Vision Night is where we take time just to celebrate what God's done in the last 12 months, uh, to worship God for it, to, to project where we're headed over the next 12 months, and then just to pray and covenant together to walk forward. You hear us say this all the time, but we don't believe the church is an audience. We believe it's an army. It's a community. And many of you need to move from the sidelines onto the ministry uh, team here at the Summit Church, and that is a very ideal way for you to begin that process. Uh, now, here's kind of the dilemma we're in. There are about 5,500 people here at the Summit Church this weekend. We, our largest venue seats 1,000 which means that we don't have room for everybody for this, so we have to make it a ticketed event. Tickets are free, but you gotta pick one up. We give out most of them last week, but we saved a few of them because I didn't wanna get all the angry emails from you college students about this is my first week here and you're giving out my ticket. So there are a few left, but it's definitely a first come, first serve kind of thing. Um, I would say this is a great way for many of you uh, not to have just an audience or a, a performance you go to on the weekend, um, but it's, you become part of the church because the church is how God does his work in your life. And so this would be a great way to do that. And you can pick that up before you leave here today, okay? All right, you got your Bible? You got your Bible? I want you to open it to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Good news is, if you were here last week, I told you that for the next eight weeks, we're going to be in John 15, which I told you, you just find it one time, put something in it, and then every week you can just open it up like you're a Bible expert. So right now, you can open up your Bible, let it flop open to John 15, because you marked it last week, and everybody around you will think about how awesome you are at knowing the Bible, and you can be filled with a sense of pride, which is sin. Um, here we go. The, uh, <laughs> the basic idea that I introduced to you last week 
was that the gospel is not just the way that we begin in Christ. The gospel is also the way that we grow in Christ. You see, for many of us in church, the gospel functioned for us something like the diving board off of which we jumped into the pool of Christianity. It was a prayer that we prayed uh, to invite Jesus into our life that began the Christian life. But now that we have become Christians, we are going to grow in Christ by all these different new things we're going to learn, precepts and principles and practical steps and how to do this. Right? And what I tried to show you was that that's not true. People, people start thinking you grow in Christ by learning you know, five ways to be a better husband and here's how you control your temper and you've got to figure out whether or not Kirk Cameron gets left behind. That's what it means to grow in Christ. What I tried to show you was that according to Jesus, the gospel is not just the diving board off of which we jump into the pool of Christianity. The gospel is the pool itself. And so we grow in Christ never by going beyond the gospel. We grow in Christ by going deeper into the gospel. You see, it is as God enlarges your understanding of the glory of who he is in the gospel, as you see his holiness, as you see what, what your sin against him was really like, when you see how much generosity and mercy and grace that he showed to you, it is when you see those things in the gospel that you begin to change. Not just your behaviors change, but you change. Your desires change. And you begin to act righteously because you begin to love righteousness. Because see, there's something that the gospel does that no religious to-do list can ever do, and that is that it changes your heart. It changes your desires. God wants you not just to act righteously. He wants you to act righteously because you love righteousness. And the only thing that can produce that kind of change in the heart is the gospel. So that's what Jesus tells in John 15. He tells us to abide in the gospel. Abide means literally to make your home in it, to dwell there. And as we do that, he says, you will grow as the roots of our lives grow deeper in the gospel, spiritual fruit, spiritual behavior comes as naturally to us as roses on a rose bush. Right? So the revolutionary, get this, the revolutionary counterintuitive truth is that real growth in Christ comes not from being told what you're to do for God, but by standing in awe of what God has done for you. That is the revolutionary truth that may overturn everything that you've heard or thought about in church. But the way that you are changed is not by me giving you a very eloquent and impassioned to-do list for God. You're not really changed. Your heart's not changed by what you're to do for God. Your heart is changed by standing in awe of what God has done for you. So I told you that for these eight weeks, I'm going to show you how that works. And I've given you an, as a tool to kind of, kind of do this with us. I've given you this gospel prayer. There was a bookmark that we gave out last week. You can pick one up this week if you didn't get one. I would encourage you to put this in your Bible and pray this every single day of this series. These are four phrases that I wrote about four years ago that just kind of encapsulated for me what it means to abide in the gospel. You'll see the first phrase there is, in Christ there is nothing I could do to make you love me more, nothing I have done that makes you love me less. That speaks to me of the gift righteousness of the gospel, that God doesn't give his love to me as a reward for having earned it. It's a gift that he gave me in Christ, and because I'm complete in Christ, there's nothing I could do or have done that makes him love me more or less. And I celebrate that every morning. Uh, by the way, I've prayed this prayer every morning for about four years. And I might have missed one here or there. But for the most part, every morning I've prayed it for the last four years. Second thing I pray, you are all I need today for everlasting joy. That reminds me that there's a lot of things I'd like God to give me. I pray and ask him for various things. But you know what the one thing that I need for fullness of joy? And that is God himself, his presence. That speaks of his all-surpassing value to me. The third phrase, as you have been to me, so I will be to others. 
that speaks to me of the radical generosity of God toward me in the gospel. And you know what happens when I start to think about that? My heart starts to become generous toward other people. You see, you become generous not by your pastor standing up here yelling at you about being generous. You become generous by understanding the lavish generosity of Christ towards you so that as you experience his generosity, you become generous. Fourth phrase, as I pray, I'll measure your compassion by the cross and your power by the resurrection. That helps me view my world through the lens of the power and the mercy that is available to me because of what God revealed about himself and his loving desire to save in the gospel. And that produces audacious faith in me. Those four things are for me what it means to abide in the gospel, and I've given you that, and I would encourage you to pray that every day for this series, to abide in it, to let God's life and his power just to begin to spring out of you. See, now by the way, if you get one of these, um, <laughs> there's another side to this that advertises this book I have coming out. Don't make the mistake that one of our pastors did. He said, I didn't realize there was two sides to it, so I spent all week praying through the endorsements to your book. Uh, that's not why I gave you this, <laughs> okay? Um, you get this, put it in your Bible, and... Uh, and, uh, and pray along with us, all right? So that's what we're doing. The other thing that we're doing through this study is we're taking a look at the five spiritual disciplines that Jesus gave us to keep us abiding in the gospel. You see, Jesus commands us at least five different things in John 15. He commands us to abide in the word. He commands us to have godly character. He commands us to be in community, commands us to be generous, and commands us to be involved in evangelism, taking his name to other people, all right? This is what he says specifically about that, John 15, 10. If you keep these commandments, these five things, then you will abide in my love. And every week what we're doing is we are exploring one of those commandments a little more deeply that he gives us there in John 15. Now, what that means, when Jesus says, if you do these, you will abide in my love, what that does not mean is that by doing them, that makes us, God love us more. I mean, no, of course, the, the gospel is gift righteousness. God gave you his acceptance as a gift because of what Christ performed for you, and you can't add anything to that or take away from it. What he meant by that statement, if you do my commandments, you will abide in my love, is that doing these things, watch, are what help you stay in the presence of God's love. Because the, watch, listen, the hard part of Christianity is never earning, is not earning God's love. Because God gives his love and acceptance as a gift in Christ. Christ did the work for you, and he gives it to you as a gift. The hard part of Christianity is believing in that love, abiding in it, remaining in the presence of it. That's the hard part of Christianity. It's not that you earn God's love, it's that you believe that it's been given to you. It's so counterintuitive. And so what these spiritual disciplines do is they keep you in the presence of that. I explained to you that they're like wires that connect us to the power of the gospel. Wires don't have any power in themselves, but wires connect you to the place from which the power comes. You know, when when uh, my, uh, my, one set of my grandparents had a farm, and uh, when I was five years old, they got a horse, named the horse Peppy. I don't know why, but they named the horse Peppy, and uh, I used to love to go visit that horse, and the horse would chew, would gnaw the top of the, the wood post fence, and so they took a little electric wire, and they ran it around the top of that fence to keep the horse from doing that. And I'm five years old. They forgot to pass that on to little JD when he came to visit the horse. You know, so I go trucking out there, climb the little fence to see the horse, and, you know, it shocked me. Now, you know, about, I only kept the horse four or five years, and then after they got rid of it, I would still go out to that, that barn, that farm, and, and at 17, 18 years old, whenever I would walk up to it, I'd have this kind of Pavlov's dog reaction to that fence because I can remember being shot. Well, they turned the power off, the wire was still there, and there was no power in that wire. Wires don't have power in themselves, but they connect you to the place the power comes from. Well, see, in the same way, listen to this, the same way spiritual disciplines have no power in themselves, 
but they keep us connected to the place that the power comes from, which is the gospel. And that's what they help you abide in. Do you get that analogy? Do you get that? Kind of shake your head, please. Okay. So here's command number one that we see in John 15. Command number one. Here we go. It's John 15, 7, which we're going to look at today. Abide, Jesus says, in my word. That's his command. Abide in my word. 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. Abiding in the word of God is going to give you access to the power of God. He also says this to him just a few verses before. If you go back one chapter to chapter 14, verse 23. And by the way, you remember, in the original you know, writing of this, there was no break between chapter 14 and 15. This was all part of one discussion. So right before this, Jesus had made this statement. Look at this. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but it's the Father's who sent me. Okay, there are four things that Jesus is teaching us about his word, the Bible, in these verses that I want to develop for you. All right, they all kind of build on each other. I'm going to give them all to you right here. Don't try to write all these down because we'll go through them one at a time. But for you type A people that love to know where we're going, this is, this is it. Then one, the first thing Jesus does is he shows us the divine nature of the Bible. Shows us how he views the Bible. It's divine nature. The second thing that he does is shows us the single focus of the Bible. Then the third thing he explains is the benefits of abiding in the Bible. And then the fourth thing that kind of flows out of these is he urges us toward a radical commitment to the Bible. So here we go. Number one, Jesus explains to us the divine nature of the Bible. This is in verse 24 of chapter 14. Jesus claims that the words that he speaks are not just the words of an enlightened man. They're not heightened God consciousness. They are the very words of God. You see that in verse 24? The word which you hear is not mine. It is the Father's who sent me. Now, this is not just an attitude that Jesus had toward his own words. If you have a red-letter Bible, the word's in red. This is the attitude he had toward all of Scripture. Every word in the Bible, he said, is the word of God. The reason I point that out is because there's a lot of people who like to say that the Bible contains this kind of like enlightenment by God that's like God's ideas, but when it was recorded by human beings, it got mixed up with a little error. Because, you know, humans aren't perfect, and when they're writing it down, they got some stuff wrong. So you got God ideas mixed up with faulty human expressions. Because, I mean, you know, these authors had their own cultural biases and traditions, and sometimes they couldn't see out of them. And sometimes they just made mistakes. But, of course, now we, 21st century Americans, with the Internet, you know, we're all sophisticated, and we're scientific. And sometimes we just have to correct some of their archaic ideas or their historical inaccuracies because we know better. Jesus did not feel that way about the Bible. These, there are three words that we use to describe Jesus' attitude toward the inspiration of the Bible. Inspiration meaning the fact that it's from God. There are three words we use to describe it that are a little nerdy and theological, but I would encourage you to write them down because they are very important. The three words are verbal, plenary, and infallible. Verbal, plenary, and infallible. Verbal means not just the ideas, but the words themselves. Plenary, of course, means the whole of them, not a part of them. And infallible means that they are unable to lead us astray, that they are without error. Right Now, let me give you a couple examples of this that sort of put all of them together. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is teaching something to his disciples, and he makes a quote from Genesis 2. 
And when he quotes from Genesis 2, he prefaces it by saying, God says, and then he quotes from Genesis 2, and if you go back and look at his quotation that he's making, it is clearly the words of the narrator of Genesis. We assume Moses. So what he is doing is saying that what Moses said, it's not even where God in, in Genesis is saying, thus says the Lord. It's what Moses is saying, and Jesus says, what Moses says is what God says in Scripture. Here's another example, very important one. John 10, 33. Jesus is in an argument with the Pharisees about whether or not it's okay for people to worship him. And so Jesus, to show them that it is okay that they worship him, he quotes from the Psalms. Psalm chapter 82, and he says this, is it not written in your law? And then he quotes a verse from Psalm 82 that has one word in it that refers to the Messiah as being God. Now here's what's significant about that. First of all, the book of Psalms is not the law, right? The, the, the Psalms are clearly songs that are written by Jewish people about God. It's not the laws that are coming from God. Secondly, he quotes Psalm 82, which is written by a guy named Asaph, who nobody's ever heard of. We don't know anything about Asaph. He's a lightweight. He's JV. David is like the superstar of the Psalms. He didn't even quote one by David. And then he takes one word out of that Psalm and bases the argument for his deity upon it. I love how Roger Nicole summarizes all this. He says, quote, Jesus Christ bases his argument for his deity on a single word and a secondary clause and an unimportant Psalm by an obscure figure in the seemingly least authoritative part of Scripture, the Psalms. You know what the point is that I'm making? All of it. Every word. Every word Jesus viewed as being the words of God so that he could build an entire argument off of one word in one verse in an unimportant part of the scripture, we think. Now, some of you are like, well, okay, well, I understand that deals with the Old Testament, but, I mean, you know, the Bible I got in my hands right here has a lot of books that are written after Jesus. You know, it's written by guys like Peter and Paul and Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. How do we know those guys got it right? I mean, maybe it was, you know, them trying to think about what they wanted Jesus to say, and maybe they had their own agenda. You ever heard that? <clears throat> Da Vinci Code. You ever heard that kind of argument? <laughs> that people, you know, oh, well, it's not recorded accurately. It's what, what some people wanted Jesus to be. Well, that's a great question. A great question. Look in verse 26 of chapter 14. You'll see something pretty interesting. Jesus says to the apostles, look at this, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. What did he just promise them? He promised them two things. Did you catch it? Number one, he promised that the Holy Spirit would bring to their remembrance accurately everything that he taught them. That is his promise that they would record accurately the emphasis of his teaching. The second thing that he promised them, did you catch that? Is that the Holy Spirit would teach them all things. Which means that the Holy Spirit would clarify and deepen and help them apply Jesus' teaching to places that Jesus never really discussed. That's the epistles of Paul. That's books like Revelation and Hebrews and James and Jude. Which is why Peter and Paul refer to each other's writings as Scripture, the same name that Jesus gave the Old Testament. The whole point I'm making is the Bible is the very words of God, verbal, plenary, infallible, which means that you can trust it. And it means you can build your life on it. And that's going to be the basis of everything else we talk about today. This is God's word to us. It is infallible. It is trustworthy. You base your life around it. You don't correct it. It corrects you. 
Listen, it is more trustworthy than if God spoke to you in a dream. How cool would that be? God speaks to you in a dream and just like tells you exactly what he wants from you. Wouldn't you have a sense of confidence when you got up the next day? Did you know that if God speaks to you in a dream, and I think he does that from time to time. I wouldn't take that away from him. But if God speaks to you in a dream, you got a one in three chance of it being God. You're like, one in three? Yeah, it could be a hallucination. Right? It could be something you ate that day that you know, had some image come up in your mind that you think is God, but it's really not. Right? That happens. It could be an evil spirit. Satan loves to impersonate God, and the scripture says sometimes he appears as an angel of light, and he will whisper in our mind and head as if he's God, and he loves to confuse us. So it might be Satan, or number three, it might be God. And good Christians a lot of times get confused. James Dobson, he's a Christian leader, talks about one time when he was in his early 50s where he felt like God gave him the, 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 the vision, the impression that he was going to die that year. Well, he's like late 60s, early 70s, and he's still kicking strong. So clearly he was wrong. If God speaks to you in a dream or a vision, you got a one in three chance of it being God. You pick up that book that you got in your hands and you read it, you got a one in one chance of it being God. Because it is the very words of God. It has the authority of God. It is God's words. It's always God. Number two, the divine nature of the Bible. Number two, the single focus of the Bible. This is verse seven. You see on verse seven, Jesus equates, look at it, his words abiding in us with us abiding in him. See how he just kind of moves between those two? Abiding in my words and abiding in me are, are, are the same thing. That's because the words of the Bible, listen, are always about Jesus. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus. Luke chapter 24, Jesus explained this. In what had to be the greatest Bible study moment ever, Jesus is talking with his apostles and it says that he begins with Moses and the prophets and he explains to them how every story, every chapter, all of it is about him. How the point in everything that he has taught them is about him. That's because the point of the Bible is one, it's about Jesus. I mean, sometimes we make fun of Sunday school teachers because, you know, every answer to the question they ask is Jesus. What's gray, has four paws and a bushy tail? I don't know, it sounds like a squirrel, but I'm in Sunday school, the answer's gotta be Jesus. We, you make fun of that, but while that may be bad teaching on one level, you see, there's another very real sense in which every story of the Bible, every chapter of scripture is pointing you to Jesus, I try to show you that every time I preach. I don't always do a great job. But you ever hear this? Every time we preach, I'm trying to show you how whatever we're talking about ultimately points back to Christ. A few weeks ago, Lamentations chapter 3, we talked about suffering and the hour of darkness. And at the end, I explained to you that Lamentations 3 is really about Jesus who would walk through this hour of darkness and be abandoned by God. And because he was abandoned by God, you and I can say, your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, oh God. Your loving kindness never ceases toward me. When we studied First and Second Samuel together last year, which is about David, remember how I explained to you that the point of those stories about David is not to give you a new hero to emulate? And that's always how we end up interpreting David, isn't it? Oh, and David's so cool, he's a teenager, goes out and whips a giant's tail with like a leather strap and some rocks. What giant is there in your life? You should face that giant and you should knock it down. I mean, sure, I get inspired by the story of David too, but that's not the main point. The main point of David's life was giving you a foreshadowing of a greater king who would come, who would fulfill what David foreshadowed, and then succeed where David failed. Now, here's another one I just learned. These are just examples. Um, Joshua and Judges in the Old Testament. In the Hebrew canon, those are one book, so they go together. 
right? Joshua and Judges, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Joshua and Judges are always what Sunday school teachers teach from because they got the coolest stories in the universe. Joshua marching around, you know, the walls of Jericho, knocking the walls down. Then you got, you know, uh, Judges, you got Samson, and you got all these cool you know, battle scenes and battle stories, Gideon and all those things. The guy that I was reading who was explaining these books said, there's something we do wrong in Joshua Judges in that we always end up taking these as like examples for us to go and face our enemies. He said, when you read Joshua and Judges, watch, there's a very clear progression that is developing. Joshua, I mean, Joshua is like a man's man. He's a stud. He is a captain of the army. He's got swagger. He commands things. He got a, he's got a kicktail army that just goes through Can the, the land of Canaan, and they just, they just they get it done. Judges opens up. Guess who the army, the captain of the army is in Judges? Deborah, who's a woman. Now, I know in our politically correct culture, we're like, well, you know, it's all equal. But to the Hebrew people, that was, I mean, again, no offense. This is just their culture. That was a step down. When you go from Jack Bauer to Barbara Walters at the head of your army, <laughs> step down, okay? So now you got a woman leading the army. Then a few chapters later, you got Gideon. Remember, he didn't even have the army. He just takes 300. Then you got Samson, who doesn't have an army, period. He just got the jawbone of a donkey and opens up a can of whoop trash on the Philistines, <laughs> right? Then you got, after that, the book of Judges closes, and you go to David in 1 Samuel, because that's the next book. David isn't even a strong guy like Samson. He's just a teenage runt with a leather strap and five rocks, What's the, whole, what's the whole point of that? What's the author trying to show you with this downward progression? He's trying to show them that Israel will not be delivered by economic, military, or political might. Israel is going to be delivered by one who comes in weakness, born in a manger, lives as a servant, dies as a criminal, and by himself defeats all of Israel's enemies and delivers them. The whole point of Joshua Judges is not to give you cool battle heroes to emulate. The whole point of Judges is that Jesus overcame it. And you worship him. The whole point of every story of the Bible is that not you leave with a list of what you're to do for God, but you stand in awe of what he has done for you. You are to leave worshiping and in love with Jesus. Which is why I often explain to you the goal that I have in preaching for you is that you worship the way I say it, it's like this, the goal of a lecture is that you leave with information. Isn't that what a lot of churches are? Where you just like, you're just, a good church service is where you copy down like five pages of notes. It's like, ah, look, what, look how much I grew in Christ today. Uh -huh. You know? Then, then you got, that's the goal of a lecture is that you leave with information. Then you got the goal of a motivational speech, which is action steps. That's what a lot of churches do. Right? You always leave with a new to-do list of things that you need to be fixing and doing for God. The goal of a lecture you leave with information, the goal of a motivational speech is that you leave with action steps, the goal of a sermon is that you leave worshiping. You leave in awe of what God has done for you because when you are in awe of what God has done for you, then what you are to do for God will come as naturally to you as roses on a rose bush or fruit on a vine. And one of my favorite verses where Paul explains preaching, he says this, I love this, look at this. To this day, whenever Moses is read, He's speaking about unbelieving people, unbelieving Jews in his, in his generation. To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Where? Where? Where are we beholding the glory of the Lord? Look back in verse 15. 
in the reading of Moses and the prophets. With an unveiled face, now we are beholding in Moses and the prophets the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Because this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. How are we transformed? The Spirit enables us to see the glory of Jesus as Moses and the rest of the Bible is read to us. And as we see the glory of Jesus in the pages of the Bible, we are transformed. Not our behavior, but us. We are transformed and we become people who seek glory because we love glory. We do righteousness because we love righteousness. And that does not come through religious to-do list. It does not come through information and it does not come by me giving you a motivational speech. It comes by you leaving this place in awe of the greatness of the glory of God who gave himself for you at the gospel. So the single focus of the Bible is Jesus. Here's number three. The benefits of abiding in the Bible. Jesus explains the divine nature of the Bible, then he explains the single focus, then he gives you the benefits of abiding in the Bible. Now I'm gonna have to do these quickly, but I see three different ones in these verses. There'll be A, B, and C. Here's A, a recreated heart. You have a recreated heart. That's verse five. Jesus says that when you abide in the gospel, his word, his life comes into your dead heart and begins to make it spiritually alive. The gospel of John draws a really interesting parallel through the word, Jesus, and through the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter one. All right, again, if you're not familiar with the Bible, this might be kind of new to you, but Genesis one opens up with these words. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. How did God create the heaven and the earth? Did he like, you know, get together some, some chemicals and potions and put them in a little Bunsen burner and mix them up and, you know, is that how he did it? No, he spoke. It says he spoke, he, he says first he created the, the earth and the earth was formless and void and then he spoke into the formless void world and as he spoke, light came out of darkness. Order came out of chaos. Beauty came out of emptiness and ugliness. And as God spoke, everything came out of nothing, and it was good. So when John, the Gospel of John, rolls around, you ever see how the Gospel of John opens? You ever notice this? In the beginning was the Word. A direct allusion back to Genesis 1. The Word now is Jesus. Watch. Just like God's Word in Genesis 1 spoke beauty and order and life, into darkness, chaos, and death, Jesus, the word of God, is now going to speak beauty, order, and life into those of us whose souls are consumed by darkness, chaos, and death. It is the word of God that is going to recreate life from death so that the Gospel of John ends with the most curious scene in the Bible to me, which is the last thing Jesus does with his apostles. You ever see this in John 21? You know what the last thing he does after he you know, gives them the words and he's about ready to go up? It says that he looks at them and breathes on them. Now, how awkward is that? You know, it's like, you're like, is that like a Hebrew way of saying, you know, I love you, I'm gonna miss you? Uh, no, that's awkward then, just like it is now. You're like, hey man, see you later. Just breathe in their face. <laughs> but what Jesus says next is really important. He breathes on them and then he says, receive the Holy Spirit. You know what he's, you know what he's doing? He's going back and replaying Genesis 2. Remember when Genesis 2, when God made man out of clay, Play-Doh made him, the last thing he does, he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life and man becomes alive. Jesus is saying that he is going to breathe the Holy Spirit through his word into their hearts 
and those who are consumed by death, disorder, disease, and chaos are going to have life and beauty come into their lives. It recreates your heart. For those of you that have marriages that are in chaos and disorder, that are empty and void, you know what you need? You need the Word of God. Because no amount of counseling is going to be able to do for you what the Word of God can do in your heart, which is recreate beauty and order. For those of you that are bound by an addiction, you can be set free by the Word of God that brings light out of darkness. For those of you that are in the confusion of unbelief, you're in depression, you are in sadness, you need to be liberated and set free. Not just by new habits, but by the Word of God that creates everything out of nothing and creates life out of death. Benefit number one is it recreates your heart in new life. Number two, or letter B. The second benefit is it gives you effective prayers. Effective prayers or answered prayers. This is verse seven. Again, look, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you want, it'll be done for you. That's a pretty big promise, is it not? Whatever you want, it's gonna be done for you. When you're filled up with the word of God, you see, listen, your requests come into line with the purposes of God. And when your requests are in line with the purposes of God, you have open access to the power of God. You see, the reason, listen, the reason many of us don't get any answers to our prayers is because our requests of God are so out of step with the purposes of God. When the people of God know the purposes of God, they have open access to the power of God. The reason some of you have never really seen major answers to prayer is because God's word has not transformed your heart to put you in line with his purposes. I love John Piper's image here. He says prayer is like a, a wartime walkie-talkie. You're on the front lines of battle, and you use that wartime walkie-talkie to radio back to headquarters to get them to give you the supplies to get the battle won. Prayer is not a bell that you ring for a butler as you're lounging around the pool and you need more ice in your drink. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie for those who are engaged in the purposes of God to have access to the power of God. You don't have answered prayer? It's probably because you're not in line with the purposes of God. The disconnect is never between the power of God and the purposes of God. The disconnect is usually between the people of God and the purposes of God. And if the people of God would get in line with the purposes of God, they would find their lives overflowing with the power of God. So that's the second benefit is effective prayers. Here's your third one. Your third one, letter C. Now, this is my favorite one. Fullness of the Spirit. Fullness of the Spirit, verse 23. This verse is awesome. Look at this. If anybody loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him, and we, who's we, my Father and I, we will come to him and make our home with him. I mean, you've heard about fullness of the Spirit, right? That's fullness with the whole Trinity, which I don't even really get, to be honest with you. I mean, because you know, the Father, Son, and the Spirit are in some ways different, but the fact that they're each God means that somehow they're all present in one another, which means that when one of them's with me, all of them with me, <laughs> mind explodes. And that's fine, because you're thinking about God, and that's just what happens when you think about God but what it's saying, watch, is that the promise and the benefit of the word is as you abide in the word, as it abides in you, the fullness of the spirit of God comes into your life, the fullness of the Trinity. I love that this verse, watch it, this verse addresses the two different extremes of Christians. We got both kinds of these Christians in our church, and I love both sets of you guys, even though I'm about to make fun of you. One set, one set of Christians always prioritizes the spirit over the word. And they're all about getting filled up by the Spirit, knocked out by the Spirit, baptized by the Spirit. 
I mean, that's what they want. They want, I just want the, I want the warm fuzzies of Jesus. I want to be knocked out. I want to like literally, you know, speak in another tongue. And I want to, I just want to have these crazy experiences with the spirit. That's one set of people. On the other side, there are those who prioritize the word over the spirit. Their idea of, you know, growing in Christ and is just taking a lot of good notes and learning more doctrine, reading theology books. You talk about these people about, you know, first, second, and third John. They're thinking John Calvin, John Piper, John MacArthur. That's what they do. They want word. They don't want spirit. They want word. Here in verse 23, the two are inextricably joined. Did you see that? Verse 23, if you keep my word, I will come and abide in fullness in you. As you grow deep in God's word, you will increase in the fullness of the spirit. And that addresses both sides, both extremes. So to one group of you, okay, the spirit side, I would just ask you this. How do you get the presence of God in your life? How do you do it? Is it through some special ceremony? You come down here, me lay my hands on you, you get knocked out, you start laughing in the Holy Spirit, foaming at the mouth, and that's it? No! According to this verse, you get the fullness of the Spirit of God by abiding in the Word of God. Paul says the same thing in Galatians 3. To the Galatians, he says, how did you receive the fullness of the Spirit? How did it happen? He said, it happened when you believed the gospel. And then he goes on in verse 6. He says, just like you believe the gospel and God gave you righteousness and forgiveness, as you continue to believe the gospel, he fills you with his Spirit. That is revolutionary for some of you that come from a charismatic background. You want the fullness of the Spirit? It's not in a special ceremony. Abide deeply in the gospel, and you will be overflowing with the Spirit. So don't seek the Spirit. Seek the gospel. And as you grow deep in the gospel, as you abide in it, you will be filled with the Spirit. And by the way, where the Spirit really comes and is present, that's his whole focus, to draw your attention to the gospel. But theologians call him the shy member of the Trinity because he never wants to point people to himself. He always points people to Jesus. So wherever he's present, the focus won't be on him. It'll be on Christ. You won't hardly even notice him because he's magnifying and bringing Jesus's qualities out. Jesus said this, John 16, 14, the Holy Spirit, he will glorify me. And I say this humbly, but because I love you, at a lot of these churches that teach you to be filled with the Spirit, their focus is on the Spirit. And that is proof that they're not really full of the Spirit because the Spirit would never do that. The Spirit always focuses on Jesus. So this speaks to those who prioritize Spirit over Gospel. You see, it also speaks to many of you who have no concept that there really is a Spirit of God. You know it, like, theologically, but you don't know it experientially that He speaks to you and communes with you and fills you. You know, for 2,000 years, the saints of God have talked about these incredible moments where they're filled up with the Spirit of God. The book of Acts talks frequently about the apostles being filled with the presence of God and having a sense of boldness and clarity, understanding of his love and preaching with boldness. Paul, 1 Corinthians 14, 25, talks about a church being filled with the presence of God so much so that even when somebody who doesn't believe in God comes in, they're suddenly filled with this awareness that there's a God who knows everything there is to know about them and they fall on their face and they worship. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my preaching heroes, who was plenty deep, right? He was reformed, he was deep. He spent six years preaching to the gospel of Romans, so he's got the depth thing down. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, he talks about these repeated moments of ecstasy he had in the presence of God. He said, it's like, it's like I'm walking along with my five-year-old daughter, and suddenly I look at her. I've used this illustration with you before, but I look at her, and I pick her up, and I spin her around, and I kiss her on her cheek and on her neck, and I look her in the face and say, you know who loves you? Your daddy loves you. He said, now, truth be told, I didn't love her any more in that moment than I did in the moment before. 
She probably knew that I was no more her daddy in that moment than I was in the moment before, but her perception of it changed. And in that moment, she was filled with awareness, a felt sense of who I was and how I felt about her. He said, that's what God does with me. Suddenly, he sweeps me up in his arms and fills me with his spirit, and I have a felt sense of his glory and his love and his presence with me. I love how he concluded this. He said, I spend half my time telling Christians to study doctrine and the other half telling them that doctrine is not enough. I'll give you, give you one biblical example, all right? And then I'll, I've got to move on. I love this one. Exodus 34. Moses tells God that he wants to be in his presence. I want to see you. That's a good definition of the fullness of the Spirit. You're in the presence of God. So what does God do? Remember this? God puts him in a rock, the cloth of a rock, covers him with his hand, and passes by. But as he passes by, he does kind of the strangest thing. You ever catch this? It says he declares his name, Exodus 34, 6. He declares his name to him. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. The Lord is merciful. The Lord overflows with loving kindness. And the Lord is just. What is he giving you a picture of? He's giving you a picture of how you and I are in the presence of God. The presence of God, let me give you a definition. The presence of God is a felt sense of the attributes of God as revealed in the gospel. The presence of God is a felt sense sense of the attributes of God as revealed in the gospel. So what the Spirit of God does is it makes the gospel large in your eyes. And suddenly you see the tenderness and the beauty and the love and the holiness of God. And that is being in his presence where you're swept away in the glory of who he is. And man, do we need that. Word, spirit, both. As you abide in the word, you abide in the spirit. So the divine nature of the Bible, the single focus of the Bible, three, the benefits of abiding in the Bible, that leads us lastly to number four. See, that calls for a radical commitment to the Bible. You see, if all these things are true, we should be radically committed to this book. That's why the center of our church is the Word of God. The center of our church is the Word of God. That's what I'm doing when I'm preaching to you. What I'm doing is not standing up here giving you a bunch of opinions and insights that I have about things. Even if those were any good, which they're usually not, it's not really going to help you. What changes you is not my insight, my eloquence, my wisdom, my funny stories. That's not what changes you. The Word of God is what changes you. So the center of all we do here is I walk you through the Bible and I get you deep into it because that has the power to transform you. The Spirit of God doesn't flow through my stories that happened to me when I was a kid or what happens to my kids now. The Spirit of God flows through the Word of God. That's why it's the big thing in what we do. It's the big thing of our, our worship. Have you ever noticed that? Our worship here, our, we anchor our worship in Scripture. Why? Because it's not the style of music. It's not anything about music that brings you into the presence of God. The Word of God brings you into the presence of God. You ever, you ever hear somebody say, man, that worship leader really brings me into the presence of God. No, he did not. Unless he lived a perfect life and died for your sins, he did not bring you into the presence of God. And I know our worship leaders, not a one of them qualifies for that. Jesus brings you into the presence of God. The worship leader may remind you that Jesus brought you into the presence of God, but that's all he's doing. He's not pointing to a style. He's not pointing you to God. He's pointing you to the scriptures. You ever hear people say this? They're like, hey, Worship, you know, it's not about what God's doing for us. It's about what we're, we, we got to give God something. We got we to bring something to God. We got to offer something to him. 
Newsflash, God doesn't need anything from you, nothing. Worship is about him declaring his word to you because he is the giver, you are the receiver. And as you are given the word of God in worship, the response of your heart naturally is worship. See, starts with the word. This is why our small groups do what they do. You're like, why do the small groups always study the same passages that Jesus is teaching through? I mean, <laughs> J.D., that is not a Freudian slip. That was completely, because I've talked about Jesus so much today. Why do, why, do, why do they study the same passages J.D.'s teaching through? Is it because they think, you know, he's going to get it wrong? Maybe. Maybe I will get it wrong. And you know what? That's fine. I want you to study the Bible, not my words. So I love the fact that in small groups, you guys are going in these same passages more deeply because then the word is saturating you and you can help filter out the things I say that are not right and get into the word of God itself. The center of all we do here at our church is the word of God, the focus of every ministry because the word does the work. If I just get the word out there, the word will do the work. For your part, what that means is that you resolve to know it. You got to resolve to know it. I love what, what Moses said, Exodus 34, to the children of Israel. He said, these are not idle words. This is your life. It is your life. What I stand up here and do every week, the reason I take it so importantly is because this is not an idle word. I'm not filling your head with knowledge. It's your life. You ever notice, you ever notice this, how in Jesus' darkest hours, you read, the, you read the accounts of Jesus' darkest hours, what he is always doing, you ever notice this? He's quoting scripture. To whom? He's not teaching anybody. He's quoting it to himself. Why? Because the way he sustained himself in his darkest hour was through the word of God. When he's tempted by Satan face to face, what's he do? He quotes the word of God. In his darkest, most troubling hours, he sustained himself through the word of God. Did you know there are 1,800 verses in the Old, uh, New Testament that record Jesus' words? Of the 1,800 verses that record Jesus' words, 180 of them are quotations from other parts of the Bible. 10% of everything Jesus said was a quotation from the Bible. That was how he had the strength to endure darkness and temptation. Here's my question for you. How much of your speech is the Bible? When you get into the darkness and temptation, what sustains you? Most of, you have, most of you have a lazy attitude toward the Bible because you don't really think it's all that essential. You're like, well, I go to church, and J.D. will explain it to me, and I got friends. Seriously? In Jesus' hour and moment of trial, what sustained him is the word of God, but you, you got something Jesus didn't have. We don't know what it is, but you got it, and that's why you don't need to know the Bible so well. Jesus didn't have time, by, by the way, to run get his Bible and look up some stuff that he was going to go through. He just quoted it. Psalm 22 comes out when he's on the cross. When he's in front of Pilate, other scriptures come out. You see, in the moment, in the moment, you have no time to go back and think about what you want to think about. It just, what's inside of you comes out. You know, I grab you and get ready to throw you off a cliff. What's going to come out of your mouth is not a prepared remark. What's going to come out is whatever's inside of you. When Jesus was stabbed in the heart, he bled God's word. And because of that, he was sustained in the hour of temptation and trial. Some of you college students are going to be destroyed this year. I see it every year. You're going to go about to go through temptation you have not ever gone through. 
You're going to go through questions of belief. You're going to go through darkness. And it's going to crush many of you because the word of God is not sustaining you. This is not an idle word. It's your life. You resolve to know it. Parents, that means I resolve to teach it to my children. Deuteronomy 6 says you write it on the tablet of their heart. You write it on the doorpost of your house. You write it on your walls, which is not a decorating scheme. It means that my most important role as a dad is teaching my kids the word of God. I know we got different styles in how we parent. I get that. I have no problem with that. But I do not understand a dad that does not look at his primary responsibility in life teaching his kids the word of God and discipling them. Which is why the most important time in my day is what I do with my children after I get home from work. You know, 8%, 8% is what they say of a church like ours. 8% of our kids will be following Christ the second year of college. 8%. 92% of our children, if statistics hold true, in this church, will not follow Christ beyond their second year of college. You want to know why? Because you didn't prioritize the word in their life. I see it, and I'm not mad about this because we need like more kids in our kids' ministry, believe me, that is not true. They're swinging from the rafters down there, okay? So we got plenty of kids. I'm not trying to beef up attendance. I'm saying it's because you prioritize everything in their life over this. You got them involved in extracurricular activities. They're going to dance. They're going to soccer. They're going to all this stuff. You're like, oh, but I got to make sure they get into the right college. Yeah, I'm concerned about college too. But can I just submit to you that where they go to college is probably not as important as where they spend eternity? This is not an idle word. This is not an academic exercise. This is their life, and they will be destroyed by our enemy unless they are sustained in those moments by the Scripture that you have put into the doorpost of their lives and written on the tablets of their hearts. For you, you've got to prioritize it in your life. I know who I'm talking to. I'm talking to mothers who have three kids, two kids, four kids. And you're like, I, you don't understand. I mean, my day, by the time I get up, my kids are yelling. I mean, they yell at me all day, and then we go to bed, and they yell. It's just, I never have any time to do anything to tell me to prioritize the Bible in my life. I understand. I, when I have four kids. I live in that world. I'm saying that for some of you mothers, you're probably going to have to get up a half hour earlier, which means you've got to go to bed a half hour earlier, which means you've got to turn the TV off a half hour sooner, which is where the discipline really starts. You businessmen are like, oh, well, you know, no, I mean, I work like 70 hours a week, dude. Be nice to live in your world. All you do is read the Bible, show up on Sunday, go home. That'd be awesome. That's just not me. Be angry and sin not. <laughs> First of all, I don't buy that because somehow you manage to squeeze in three rounds of golf a month, all right? Second of all, second of all, if that's true, then buy yourself a listening Bible on MP3 on your iPod. Get your teenager to show you how to use it. And listen to it on the way to work. I used to do one time in my life, one chapter, where I felt like I was so busy, I was just cutting everything. And I said, you know what? I'm going to buy it. And I listened to it 20 minutes driving to work, 20 minutes back. Get the word of God in you. But I mean, probably most importantly, I just don't buy it, period. You, could, you just don't prioritize it. That's why you don't make time for it. I'll prove it to you. You eat, Right? 
You're like, no, nah, man, sometimes I get so busy at work, I, I forget to eat. Fine, you never do that two days in a row. You'll squeeze it in somewhere. When your spirit craves the word of God as much as your body craves food, you won't skip it for days on end either. You've got to prioritize it because it's your life. It is your life. It's not an idol word. You've got to open yourself up to what it's going to teach you. I'll say this to our, specifically to our college students, and I'm going to bring this to a close here. You've got to open yourself to what it teaches. Some of you, you'll never really know anything about God. You want to know why? Because you come to God with a bunch of biases and preconceptions about what God is allowed to be. You see how dumb that is? I mean, just, and I say this humbly. I'm just using this as an illustration. And I'm not making any political statements here. Let's say that you and I were going to be friends, and I come to you, and you're like, I was like, well, tell me about yourself. You're like, well, I'm a, kind of a pretty ardent Democrat. I'm like, oh, I really want my friends to be Republicans. And so in my mind, you're going to be a Republican. I'll never know you that way because I'm not knowing you for who you are. I'm knowing you for how I think you should be. There's a lot of people come to God exactly that same way. God, this is what you're allowed to do. This is what you're allowed to be. I don't like this part of you, so I'm just going to ignore this. You will never know God that way. You have to let God challenge you, contradict you, even tick you off for you to know the real him. You have to open your heart to his teaching. You're like, oh, but I just, I don't know how. I don't know how to do this. On our website, we have provided for you, you forward slash gospel, or just go to our front page and you can see it. We provided you a 15-minute way to spend time with God we, we sketched it out for you for the next month. And you can go and you can actually just start it. There are 15 minutes a day that you can begin to grow in your knowledge of the word. Start there. I can't close this without at least remembering for just a minute. I can't talk about this without thinking about this. The fact that there are 2.25 billion people on our planet who have no access to the word of God in their language. 6,640 unreached people groups that have yet to have the Bible translated to them. What better thing is there if we believe what we believe about the Bible is there for us to give our money, our resources, and our time to than getting the Bible into those languages for those people. For some of you, that's what you ought to give your life to, is getting this book that is God's words. It's not idle words. It's life to people who otherwise would have no way to hear it. That's what we do as a church. It's why we give like we give and why we do what we do. It's not idle words. It's life. Why don't you bow your heads with you? if you would, at all of our campuses. The most important truth in the Word of God, this is where it begins, and everything else after this just takes you deeper in this. Listen, you and I are rebellious against God. We're sinners. And because of that, there's a penalty that we owe, but God in His love came as Jesus and suffered our penalty in our place. So that the word of God to us is repent and believe. Repent means surrender control of our lives. Believe means to receive what he's done for us. And if we repent and believe, we will be reconciled to God. That is where it begins. Everything else from there is just going deeper into that. Maybe you're here and you've never done that. You've never repented and believed. I would invite you as I do every week that that be what you do. You receive the message of the Bible. You turn over control of your life to Jesus and you receive what he's offered to you. Father, in these moments... Make the gospel and the word and the spirit large in our eyes because they are all the same. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.